Welcome, guys, to Self-Evident Podcast. I am Mike. You may notice something's different. I am sitting in the chair of Massey, who is not here tonight. Um, he actually has a board meeting. Um, our guest tonight is Paul Garner. He is a good friend of ours. He's here at the church. Um, the cool thing about this is we get to interview people that aren't necessarily known um, in the wider sphere, yet still have so much to, to give and to provide. And so we want to give these people a platform to really have discussions with them because we truly do believe that they have something to give us, something to talk about, something that they're very passionate about. So we're going to get into that. A um, couple of housekeeping tips. It is the end of the year. Uh, one of the reasons Massey's having a board meeting is we have the end of the year newsletter coming out. Um, so be watching for that. If you'd like to receive it, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll get one out to you. Um, this gives you our donation list of what we're looking for. Um, some of the things we're looking for, we're looking for a laptop. We're looking for, uh, money for travel expenses. Um, we're hoping to hire an assistant. Uh, so if you'd like to donate, please wait for that newsletter, or you can always go to Patreon. If you want to get podcast specific, you can donate on the Patreon, or you can write in when you contact us, hey, I want my money to go to the podcast. Um, so please feel free to donate. We would love to have that uh, to help us continue what we're doing. So now that housekeeping is out of the way, Paul, how are you doing? Doing great, Mike. Good. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. It's actually been a while since we've it been has, able to yeah. <laughs> sit yeah. and chat. Um, so when I had invited you on, I had... I wanted to pick something that I thought you would be able to have a really good discussion on. I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that you can have a good discussion on. Um, but I thought America's role internationally would be a good topic because there aren't a ton of people that can talk about it and, and are well-versed in what's going on in the world and how America relates. Um, so... Just to get it started off, uh, what do you think, if, if we were to have a philosophy for America, mm -hmm. what do you think that philosophy should be, or let me, let me pull that back. We'll keep opinion out of it for a second. What do you think that philosophy is right now on the American stage, especially with Trump and everybody's mentioning how much he's making waves and he's you know, causing this stir and this chaos amongst the other nations. What do you think his philosophy is? What do you think our nation's doing right now? Well, I think that Trump is uh, doing something different that's been done, uh, that hasn't been done for decades even. What he's doing is putting America first um, mm -hmm. in terms of our government's agenda. And uh, that has offended lots of people. Uh, but Trump is not being exclusive about that. He's not being prideful. He's not being uh, arrogant. What he's doing is he's suggesting that every president of every country should be uh, a champion for their country. And as he once said uh, uh, around the Paris Climate Accords, he said that I was elected to be the president of the people in Pittsburgh, not the people in Paris. Hmm. And so, but that doesn't mean he thinks that uh, the president of of France is a bad guy or doing a bad job. It's just that the president of uh, France should be a champion for his own people yeah. and not try to become a member of a club of elites leading multiple countries around the world. And prior to Trump, there was this tendency to go globalizing where uh, the sovereignty of each country was uh, intended to be subordinate to some kind of global power structure, okay. uh, power and authority structure. And Trump has reversed that course uh, tremendously. And, of course, those people who favored that course are extremely upset about it, uh, both people inside our country as well as other countries as well. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they just think that America first is a bad idea because they treat America first as though it's uh, an assault on their countries when it isn't isn't really no and and i think you know you're watching 
um, kind of this rise of that dirty word populism, <laughs> you know, that that word has become so evil because yeah. somehow it's become synonymous with Nazis and, and yeah. you know, this mm-hmm. radical far right agenda. Sure. Um, but you you saw Brexit happening right around mm-hmm. the same time as Trump. Right. You right. know, it, and when when I was watching it, I was sti- sitting back and going, OK, so what happened with Trump it's not just us. There, right. there seems to be this undercurrent against yes. centralizing governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've watched in Italy, right. uh, in really in France, Marie Le Pen did did better than they thought she was mm-hmm. going to. She she got more favor than they thought she was going to. Right. You know, and, and it seems that there's this groundswell of, especially after the EU. Sure. The EU really just bungles the whole thing and everybody goes, I don't know that I want to be a part of that. Right. Well, if you consider that the EU is a little bit like the United States in a way, um, we have 50 states. um, They have, what, 15 countries, uh, something uh, something like like that that in the EU. But whenever you have an association of countries or states like that, those countries or states have to um, subordinate their national sovereignty to a higher power. In the U.S., we did that to the federal government uh, back in 1789, and the EU did it uh, back in the 1980s. Um, So, And there are stiff requirements to join the EU. Each country uh, has to surrender their currency. That's... What do you make of that? Do you you think it's this, this true consolidation of we want a single nation at some point? Well, I think everybody was short-sighted about that because it sounded like a great package deal where labor could move easily across uh, national borders without visas, without special uh, authentication, things like this. So wherever the the best jobs were, that labor could go anywhere in Europe uh, to take those jobs. And that sounded like a really great deal. And not just labor, also um, capital of all resources. Money could trans- to go across borders because they all had the same currency. And that all sounded like a great deal. And in theory, it should work. Yeah. The problem is you get a country like Greece, who a couple of years ago went through a, a terrible financial crisis, and uh, they have a socialist government there where so many people live off the dole. And they call it a pension, but it's yeah. really just a dole. Um, but they could not solve their own financial problems because they didn't have their own currency, the drachma that they used to yeah. have uh, there. And uh, so if you don't have your own currency, you don't have control over its value. Other countries uh, do can't, that are not in a union like that and still have their own currency can actually devalue their own currency, change the exchange rate, which solves some debt problems. Yeah. And Greece could have done that if they had their own currency. There's uh, so I'll ask you, and, and if if you don't want to get too far into it, that's fine. But devaluation of currency is something mm-hmm. that interests me. The mm. economic side of it, sure. Uh, this idea that. Well, if we devalue the currency, if if we keep pumping money in, mm-hmm. it'll it'll basically crush the debt because we've got more dollars to throw at the debt. That's right. 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 Um, and I've always come from the economic side of this is going to collapse at some point. Everybody loses value when you do that. Yeah. The the one argument that I've had a hard time getting around is Japan, mm-hmm. who's been doing quantitative easing for what almost forty years now. Right. Mm-hmm. And they had th- their their economy hasn't grown, but it it, it, it hasn't, hasn't collapsed, collapsed either, right? You know, so I, is that something you see is is actually beneficial to be able to devalue a currency? Um, in isolate in isolation, I would say devaluing currency is not a good practice. But the yeah. problem is that it's not in isolation. If you have your national, if you have your government going heavily into debt. Uh, that's the flip side of the currency problem. And uh, you need the currency to be able to pay the debt. And if you go into debt more and more, you need to adjust your currency in order to make those payments properly, Um, especially if your economy is not growing enough to throw off the cash to be able to pay the debt. So 
devaluing currency is a terrible idea in principle because currency should float according to the global markets. And behind that currency is your own economy. Yeah. If your GDP is great, you're going to have strong currency and it'll be in demand and it'll be able to buy more stuff and you'll need less debt. But if your economy is not doing well enough and your spending is exorbitant, uh, then your currency is not going to be able to support that. Which it's almost like you're trying to outrun yourself at that point. Yeah. You're, you're hoping your economy will keep up in mm-hmm. order to support the devaluation. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a purist, so I, I go, well, if we had, you know, a gold standard or, or yeah. something, you know, mm-hmm. instead of having fiat currency holding up fiat currency. Right. Um, and that's, you know, it, it kind of tying back into the EU, that was one of the things that I saw was you've, you've now connected these 16 economies or whatever together. Mm-hmm. And exactly what my concern was, was what happened with Greece, was you had one who, who really started falling, is it despite, you know, the, the single currency, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, now the other countries have to, well, they're either going to pull us down with them, or we've got to save them. And, That's right. And Germany basically said, we don't want to. Right. You know, right. sink yourself. Yeah, but they still had to contribute. Yeah. Uh, they had their banks. It wasn't actually the national national governments, but it, yeah. the the banks. They were the, of all of these countries. Uh, Germany, in particular, the the richest countries, Britain, Germany, and France, all had to help bail out uh, Greece. Yeah. And I think that that led to Brexit. Um, the people of Britain had had lost their sovereignty to the EU government in Brussels, and the people were angry about that. Huh, I didn't even. I didn't think about the economic side of it because the whole time I was watching Brexit, I was watching the political side of it. Mm-hmm. And, and there were plenty of people who I was listening, reading to, who were talking a lot about the lack of representation. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, you, you send your MEPs, but guess what? They can't do anything. The, That's right. The council is the one who decides whether or not the law is going to go into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I I hadn't thought about the economic side of it where Great Britain was having their banks were having to shell out cash to help float Greece. Right. The people Along with other countries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then the people of Britain didn't feel like they had uh, a voice in that whole process. Not to mention the fact that uh, if you we, we the, there was a global recession around 2007-89 and that but that still allowed labor to go wherever the jobs were. So the people of Britain were forced to allow um, Mm. uh, unfettered immigration into their country from other European countries. And if those countries had already admitted people from Syria, for example, they would be easily transferred or mobile within the EU. So a lot of jobs went away uh, from people who were native to Britain. So they were a little angry about that. And and, uh, personally, I would say rightfully so. I mean, there's... We've, we're witnessing a very similar event in America, mm-hmm. which it's interesting that now some politicians are starting to come out and say, okay, maybe this isn't such a great thing. Right. And if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Hillary Clinton was looking at Europe and Germany and saying, okay, mass migration might not be the best thing for them. She said that recently, yeah. But, but she kept silent about America. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, she may, I mean, if you look back at the history of Hillary Clinton and a lot of politicians, they said something different uh, a few years oh, ago. Yeah. Even President Obama sounded exactly like President Trump about the border yeah. going back about eight or ten years. And uh, so he and President Trump agreed at one point uh, about what should be done about the border. Yeah. And yet uh, then he changes his mind. That's yeah. one good thing about Trump as well is that he, I haven't seen him actually change his mind on a significant issue. Yeah. Uh, he's made some promises during the campaign, and he's one of the few politicians I've seen so far that's tr- really trying to keep him. And Massey and I were talking about that, and I said, and I told him, I was like, you know, one of the things I have to respect about Trump is that he may he may tell blusters, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, yeah. it was the largest oh, yeah. crowd ever, but mm. he, he's a New Yorker. He's, yeah. he's a business Big, man. big. He, everything's yeah, big. Everything's the big. The big apple. Bluster, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's all the greatest ever. If you listen yeah. to him talk, every other word is best ever, That's greatest right. ever, largest. Right. But on the policies, 
I haven't seen him lie. No. Mm-hmm. He, he's, you know, he says what he wants to do and he tends mm-hmm. to try and go for it. Now, mm-hmm. do I agree on everything he's doing? No. But I can't help but say the guy's been consistent. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's been a lot more consistent than pretty much any other presidents we've had in a long time. For those of us who voted for him, we're pleased that we don't have, uh, that our votes were not wasted. Yeah. Um, I've, I voted Republican all but one election in my life, and I was perpetually disappointed by mm-hmm. the actions of the candidates once they were elected, that they didn't follow through on the things that I voted for them for. Yeah. So... So what year was it that you didn't vote Republican? That was uh, 1976 when President Carter was running. I voted for him. Really? The only Democrat in my life that I've ever done that with. Really? Yeah. And that turned out to be a huge disappointment as well. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you feel now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> After the uh, Huge vote? disappointment. Uh, I voted for him because he was very open about his faith. Yeah. Uh, he had a great walk with God, uh, with Jesus, and he's a tremendous humanitarian as well. Uh, his heart's in the right place. And uh, I just felt an affinity with him as a Christian that, um, uh, that I should vote for him. Hmm. But th- that taught me an interesting lesson about being a Christian in America, that um, we, just because a person is a Christian and holds Christian values does not mean that they are proper, properly equipped for any particular office. Yeah. Uh, we know that with pastors and school teachers and even worship leaders, it's also true of presidents. Just because a person is a Christian doesn't make them ideal to be president. Yeah. And so even if somebody's not a Christian, that doesn't make them uh, immediately disqualified from the office of president. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think you make a good point with with Christians not necessarily being right for office, especially a position like president because it's so easy to forget what your limitations are. Mm, yeah. Um as in that role. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, like we saw with Carter, there was this Christian ethic that got intermixed into an attempt to do things that government was really not meant to be doing mm-hmm. um, right. and wasn't put there, therefore. And, sure. you know, a lot of times, like Massey and I will say a lot, uh, people think we want a theocracy. We actually don't. No, we, we don't. Do not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we not. We want... Christians who know the role well and have good character being in office. Mm-hmm. That's much different from having a Christian theocracy in Absolutely. power. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and to look at it that way of the role, the position, the, you know, that kind of thing, there's, you have to weigh your presidents carefully. Mm-hmm. Now, then it, it becomes the flip with Trump where we don't see the morals or the the qualities that we really want to see in our leaders mm-hmm. and people have pointed at us mm-hmm. and said you're supporting this guy who cheated on his wife and is on his third sure. marriage sure i don't have a defense for that well uh, here's know. here's a thought to consider uh we have a man in office right now who has not who does not have a good moral track record no and his respect for women has been suspect yeah uh, along the way. However, we had before him, we had eight years of President Obama, w- for whom uh, he apparently has led a mostly upstanding moral life. Okay, not his fa- Christian faith is suspect, um, yeah. but I don't want to cast any decisions about that because I don't really know. Yeah. But he had a respectable moral reputation, and yet he presided over eight years of destruction of American values. Hmm. Uh, and if I even go sure. back further to President uh, w, uh, George W. Bush, uh, as much as I voted for him twice, uh, I believe he did a lot of great things, but he also undermined our liberty in America with the Patriot Act. Absolutely. So he's a, he's a solid Christian, a high moral individual, faithful in service to this country uh, throughout his life, just like his father was. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, because of 9-11, he put sort of the safety of Americans ahead of our liberty, and he undermined liberty in a, in a profound ways in this yeah. country. So voting for a man because he is a Christian or not is not going to tell you what kind of president he's going to be. Voting for a man because he's some race, white, black, 
Asian, Latin, whatever, is also a very poor foundation for decision-making. So a lot of people voted for President Obama just because he was black. He was the first black president. How exciting America has progressed so far. What we ended up with is somebody who undermined our liberty. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he undermined our foreign policy tremendously as well. Yeah, and and that's, that side note is very valuable of saying um, voting for somebody just because of their race is, isn't all that far off from voting for somebody just because they're Christian. Right. They may not be best suited for the role. That's right. Um, but getting back into the foreign policy, you had mentioned you know Obama, his mm-hmm. foreign policy. Let's let's contrast that because there were a lot of people who were very excited for Obama's foreign policy. He mm-hmm. did what conservatives dubbed the apology tour. He mm-hmm. went, went all around to sure. the Middle East nations, basically apologizing for us mm-hmm. being America. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you see? What did you notice during those eight years of foreign policy? And, and where do you think it left us? Well, part of it, too, is that President Obama was not a courageous person. And when it comes to foreign policy, you have to have a person of strength and courage to hold a ground of principle in the face of other countries who are trying to get their own way. It's a little bit, I mean, negotiation, everybody's coming to the table with the idea of their own interests. Uh, But in fact, what ended up happening is that he was not a courageous man. He would not stand his ground against other countries that would try to push us around. And so uh, we ended up, the greatest example of this is the, uh, the payment to Iran over the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, we paid them billions of dollars in cash, uh, pallets of cash we gave to them in a kind of plea. I mean, he didn't negotiate from a hard standpoint. He basically tried to bribe them into good behavior with this billions of dollars, yeah. which is just foolish because they ended up using that money for to fund more terrorism in Syria, in uh, Lebanon, uh, among the Palestinians uh, in Israel as well. So uh, we all knew that was going to happen. And there's no evidence whatsoever that they are holding uh, their side of the bargain about not developing nuclear weapons. No, and the economic woes that they're going through right now, I mean, obviously we have a big role to play in that Mm -hmm. um, by our sanctions, but their own people are pointing out, we're starving and you're funneling all this money to terrorism. Right. Um, And... I do believe the hammer is going to drop at some point for Iran. Uh, what I'm concerned about is that Iran will suddenly turn around and blame us and Israel as the scapegoats, um, which I think this is a bit of a segue. So I I wanted to cover Israel with mm-hmm. you um, yeah. because, you know, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so so feel free to clear this up, but I think both of us are cooperate with other nations but america first absolutely yeah um where do you think israel fits into that well it's kind of an ironic part because while i really like george washington's view of um, uh, foreign policy where he said that nations don't have friends they have interests Mm -hmm. and uh, mostly he was not an isolationist, but he was definitely one who uh, said, "I'm not. We don't want to get involved in these alliances yeah. where we take one side or the other." Um, but Israel is more than an interest to us. Israel is a friend, yeah. um, and from a Christian standpoint, uh, Israel even more than that. It's our spiritual heritage. Um, that's where uh, where Jesus came from. That's where our faith originated. Uh, whether or not somebody believes that uh, the church is the new Israel or not is not relevant really for politics. Uh, It's more of a uh, theological question. Um, But the fact that President Trump has moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is a huge huge. thing. And that goes back to the example of the difference between Obama and Trump as well. Um, The decree to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem happened way back in the uh, 90s, sorry, in the 90s. And so Congress passed that. But no president has ever followed through on that uh, congressional act to do that. Yeah. And Trump is the first one who had the courage to do it. Now, 
the implication for Obama is that he was more sympathetic to the Palestinians and to other Muslim causes around the world. Yeah. He was soft on ISIS, soft on al-Qaeda, um, and Trump has um, made more headway um, in fighting those uh, extremist forces and supporting Israel at the same time. So why, well, let me stick on Israel for a second. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get to ISIS and all of that in a second. Um, I, that was something that I, I really applauded um, Trump to mm. do because every president before him had paid lip service to it. Of yes. It, we'll, we'll move it. Mm -hmm. And then they just tried to forget about it. Mm -hmm. um, and Trump was the first one to go, no, we're moving it. Right. And he's hard-headed enough to go ahead and do it if he wants to do it. Yeah. He's courageous and, oh, um, yeah. and strong. Yeah. He, I, I, you, we always, Massey and I always joke, we, we don't want to talk about Trump on the podcast. I mean, everybody talks about Trump. Mm. But international politics, there's no way you can get around you it can't. when yeah. you're talking about America. And, yeah. and so that's one of the things I value about him on the global stage is he's, it's almost like he just doesn't care and he doesn't have fear about yeah. other countries, other leaders. Right. There's almost this ignorant brashness to him, which mm -hmm. I know drives people on the left crazy. Right. They they see him and they go, this guy is complete ignoramus. He has mm -hmm. no idea what he's going to do. He's going to end the world. Yeah. And I've, I've had those moments where I've kind of like, oh, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I value that he's the type of guy that can walk into the EU or walk into NATO and tell them the truth. Right. Say, you're not paying your fair share. That's right. Fair share. Right. You know, right. Pay up or we're done. Right. And that's, that's straight out of his book, The Art of the Deal, as well, because there is something about his negotiating style that where he goes in with the most extreme presentation of an yeah. idea. He uh, Remember, it wasn't just that 2%, he was trying to get NATO countries to pay. That was sort of the baseline. Then he said, maybe we should raise it to maybe 3.2%. <laughs> so that's his sort of um, negotiating thing. If you don't pay up on the 2%, we're going to make it 3.2% yeah. and see how you like that. Uh, it's that kind of um, negotiating style. And, and he, ha he does this a lot with a lot of his negotiating where he comes out with some crazy idea. Of, we're going to make Mexico pay for the wall. Well, that seems unlikely in a direct format. There might yeah. be other ways that he thinks he's going to get to be able to pay for that. But the idea is that he goes extreme for the negotiation, and then he comes out of it with a result that is more aligned to what he really wanted and what we all really want. Yeah. Um, so it's a negotiating style more than anything. So with his negotiating style, what do you think of the, the tariff war that he's got going on with China right now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I knew that would be a juicy one for sure, you. Absolutely. Well, part of it is that uh, I don't think he's going to be quite as successful with China as he has been with Mexico and Canada, with the new the new um, MCCUSA, something like that. Yeah, and, I don't remember what it's called. But right, yeah, the, right. The but the new, the new NAFTA, the replacement for NAFTA, yeah. right. I don't think he's going to be as successful with China as he has been with, uh, with the new NAFTA. And part of the reason for that is that China's got a very long-range view of their place in the world and in history. Mm -hmm. um, they already have a roadmap going out 50 years in terms yeah. of their future, and that includes global dominance. Um, they, they've got mile markers along the way, milestones of where they expect to be in 2025 and then 2030, 2040, and uh, all of it. And they have, they're operating that strategy around the world, um, uh, belt, and, uh, belt and road strategy, where yeah. they are actually working their way westward from their own country and uh, on land doing the old Silk Road uh, through right. um, through Asia into Europe for trade. And then also they've got a sea-bound one where they are dominating in the South China Sea and then making relationships with all of their uh, neighbors in Southeast Asia, going through to India. And that's the, uh, the belt part of that belt and road. Yeah. All the way along, they're using their billions of dollars in revenue to buy countries' loyalties. 
Yeah. And if they can't, and they, so they're loaning the money. And if the countries can't pay them back, it's a little bit like a loan shark because they're going to come and they're going to collect. And then these countries are going to have to give up some assets along the way. So, so that being said, America is playing a, a much shorter game with yes. that. Um, America is coming in saying, well, you need us. So mm-hmm. come to the table and deal with us. Right. I don't think they will. And the facts that they're they're expanding and spreading and they're, they're looking 50 years out, they're saying, well, as long as we get these loyalties from these 100 other countries, mm-hmm. well, that, that takes care of America if we lose America. Right. Um, so I kind of wonder if, if they're... They're fine with watching America go off into the distance because mm-hmm. it actually strengthens them in the long run. Right. And America, despite what people think, America needs China more than we're willing to admit, I yeah. believe. Yep. Um, especially with the fact that our manufacturing is a shell of what it used to mm-hmm. be. Right. Um, and, and China has, and, and those East Asian, Eastern Asian countries have really taken over our manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So if China starts really having stronger control over countries like Taiwan, you mm-hmm. know, Thailand, like Vietnam, yeah. Vietnam, we could be in real trouble. We could. I'm, I think that, that, that the trouble part is still a distance away, yeah. um, maybe 40, 50 years, but it's coming. Yeah. Um, it, no country can sustain the kind of um, a role in history um, that the United States has hoped for Democracy has never lasted in any country in all of history more than 200 years. That's true. And we're aging well past that yeah. uh, that now. So even the Roman Empire that started off as a democratic republic, mm-hmm. um, the republic part of the Roman Empire lasted less than 200 years. So uh, republics don't last that long. It doesn't have a long shelf life. So mm-hmm. it's possible in the competition of the world. Uh, people thought the, the British Empire was going to last forever. They used to say that the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's true. And yet yeah. um, it was World War I that really took them apart, and World War II was the last, uh, last hurrah for the British Empire. Yeah. And, uh, and a new empire rose up, and it happened to be the United States. But it could have, off, been, it could have been Russia or China. That's true, and, and America really rose off the, off the dying back of... Britain. Yes. You know, Britain was so enveloped in World War One and World War Two, and we, we sat back and tried to avoid it at all mm-hmm. costs because, hey, we'll, we'll sell weapons to everybody. We'll, yeah. we'll manufacture for you sure. guys. No sure. problem. <laughs> well, consider this. Um, I have had this debate with a few people before, uh, particularly relative to World War Two and, and our aid coming to the aid of Europe uh, yeah. at that time. The entire reason we had to go to go in to help them is that after World War One, Britain and France unilaterally disarmed after the Treaty of Versailles after World War I where Germany was forced to pay reparations and Germany was supposed to pay attention to these rules they couldn't rebuild their military all those kinds of things well Germany violated all those rules after Hitler came around in the uh, early 1930s but Britain and France had disarmed so they could not go in and hold Germany accountable for these uh, treaty violations. And so it was a stupid policy on the part of Britain and France that they disarmed themselves because they were tired of war. And I couldn't blame them for being tired of war. Yeah. I mean, World War I was a terrible, terrible um, event in their history. But um, the fact that they disarmed caused World War II because they were not able to defend themselves against a second rise of the German government, the Third Reich. And and the the election of soft politicians to yes. support that, um, mm-hmm. especially Neville Chamber- Chamberlain, yes. will probably go down as one of the the worst. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of the. He's worst. the Jimmy Carter of Britain. He, yeah, he really is. Like <laughs> people look at him and go soft, you know. Yeah. And and without a strong leader, you're going to end up having to face a despot at some point. Right, right. Which, Ronald Reagan proved that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, peace through strength. Absolutely. And and one of the things everybody hammered Reagan for was that he wouldn't back down. That's right. He, he wouldn't give in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you that's one of the th- other things I wanted to talk to you about is, is that spread of communism. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about America, international relations. Mm-hmm. Vietnam War was such a, a tumultuous 
topic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, we don't have any reason to be there. And then there's the smaller side that was saying, no, we need to be there to thwart communism back at its origins. Yeah. To try and hand it, it in. That was a lot of marketing. Um, I actually am old enough to be to have grown up during the Vietnam War, yeah. and uh, um, a lot. I didn't know this at the time in the 1960s. I was still a kid, but I was uh, still pretty paying attention to things. And I didn't realize at the time that that whole domino theory about the countries falling to communism yeah. was mostly marketing. Really? Yeah, because the only reason we ended up in the Vietnam War was not because of communism; is because France invited us to come and help. Huh. Because uh, the French were already there. The yeah. French were already fighting this battle against the insurgents, uh, communist insurgents supported by China. Basically a little proxy war kind of thing going yeah. on. And the French, French were getting beat up uh, terribly. And so they asked for help. And so we sent a few advisors. Well, our advisors got hurt. And uh, so President Kennedy at one point said, hey, no, we're just going to bring it back. Uh, we're just not, we're not going to get involved, but uh, it turns out that uh, some event happened where we had to send more troops rather than taking the troops out, and it just drew us in further and further. And so the domino theory was largely a marketing tool by uh, Secretary of Defense McNamara, who was um, in favor of us um, continuing in that war and defeating communism. So do you think he actually believed it, or or he... Yes, he well, yeah, I do believe he, that motives. McNamara believed in defeating communism. And yeah. I think most of America did at the time as well. The, the communist threat was uh, pretty much something that the 20th century was well aware of, yeah. going back even to the early in the 20th century. But after World War II, we had conceded territory to Stalin as a communist leader. And then Mao came to power in China, and um, uh, the free Chinese left uh, to form Formosa at the time that became Taiwan. And uh, uh, so America was very afraid of communists. We had our mm. communist trials and yeah. things like that. So it was on our minds. Uh, so it was not a huge stretch to convince the American people that we're fighting against uh, the fall of more countries to communism. Which we, we saw that type of marketing so successful in World War II. Mm-hmm. Because you, you had a real threat, a, a real danger to the world um and i've noticed that that's become the mo from there on out is Mm -hmm. this this is a danger to the rest of the world we must fight this so so where does america draw that line then it uh, that's part of the problem with communism is that we don't allow enough time for it to implode and fall in on (laughs) itself (laughs) let it Uh, kill itself (laughs) yes exactly i mean look at what happened to uh to the soviet union they imploded and collapsed on themselves. Look at Venezuela. It's collapsing on itself. Communism and even extreme socialism is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable model. Maggie Thatcher, uh, former prime minister of Britain, said that uh, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Exactly. You know, and you can't do that. So uh, communism and socialism will always collapse on itself. The problem is we don't want to wait for it. So we want to use force. Uh, to try to stop it, prevent it, force its collapse, you know, however we want to do it. Um, And some countries collapse quicker than others. Venezuela was, uh, wow, that was fast. It was fast, which the the collapse of oil prices really, it was the death knell for for Venezuela. I think if Mm -hmm. oil prices had stayed, Venezuela would have taken 30, 40 more years to really do itself in. Yeah, that's true. But the collapse of oil fell, and then they doubled down on Mm -hmm. socialism. Part of it is, too, that the Vietnam War was um, so decimating to our national identity. Uh, I remember coming out of the 70s, our country was so demoralized. Um, Along the same line, I graduated from high school in 74, and that was the same year as the end of the war and the end of the draft. Uh, so men could still had to register for the draft, but you yeah. were not likely to be drafted anymore because the soldiers were coming home. But that was after 57,000 Americans were killed in that war, not to mention the hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. Yeah. And even Agent Orange is still affecting that country today. Yeah. Uh, the defoliation, it's still causing a lot of birth, de- birth defects. So uh, that war was devastating. And uh, then in the early 1970s, we had a recession. We had, the, we had gas lines because the Arab countries in the Middle East who dominated the oil industry were uh, embargoing us. 
And so there were gas lines. Uh, you know, we had been used to paying 25 cents a gallon for gas. It spiked five times that to a buck 25. Sounds great nowadays. We'd love yeah, to have that again, but, but it was five times what we had been used to. Especially in 1970s dollars. Right. That's right. expensive. And you got your gas based on uh, the ending number in your license plate, if it was odd or even. And odds got their gas one day, evens got them the, the other day. So we were beginning to feel like a communist country with the shortages uh, that no. were happening in that kind of that thing. So that, the the loss of national identity. Um, when you're when you're saying that, one of the things that I connected to that is is the fact that there wasn't an agreed upon moral reason to be in Vietnam. That's right. World War Two. Every, oh, yeah. Especially after Pearl Harbor, everybody, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely, we need to do yep. this, right? Um, and you couple that with the the recession, you couple that with the embargoes, you couple that honestly with with the um, sexual revolution in the mm-hmm. late sixties, and and mm-hmm. this whole you know turning turning everything on its head and getting rid of authority, and and you really mm-hmm. started this pinball of of loss of national identity mm-hmm. um, do you see that as playing itself out you know we had the 70s then the next decades after that do you do you think we gained some type of national identity did we ever get back is it losing even worse um, I think it's similar to what President Reagan once said that uh, liberty is not something that we have in our blood we have to teach it to each generation one at a time. And that's true about national identity as well. I think that we have to keep relearning what our identity is uh, with each generation. And there are plenty of people out there who are wanting to be the arbiter of what national identity it means. I mean, we've gone through a stage recently with a lot of people in the public tearing down statues of key figures in our history just because they somehow offended somebody. Um, And they're trying to say that being white is an offensive thing, Um, you know, that there's privilege just by being white, which is just absurd. But people are trying to to define what our new identity is going to be. And um, so it changes with each generation, and we have to guard what we think is valuable with each generation. But we are certainly not the generation, the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw wrote about. Um, We're not that generation anymore. We're not that country anymore. Uh, we were so unified around World War II that we really felt like we had a common enemy and we joined together. Uh, young men were lying about their age so that they could get in, they could mm-hmm. enlist in the military at an earlier age. Nowadays, we are the first generation of people th- where there's uh, family, whole families of men and women who have never served. And that includes me, too, by the way. Uh, I never served in the military, unfortunately. Um, so that's a whole generation who have never served in that way. Yeah. And it and does affect our identity. It does. Um, there's a, uh, a theory, which this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but there's a theory that when you have a, a small tribe, all of the men really have to be part of the defensive mm. force yes. to protect the women and children. Mm-hmm. As the tribe grows, you start you start to have some men that don't have to be part of the protection. They can mm-hmm. stay in the, the center square. Sure. You know, as that tribe continues to grow and grow and grow, you have less people that are your defensive mm-hmm. measure against mm-hmm. other tribes because right. you have enough people to pull from. Um, in America, we've, we've lost that part of our identity as mm-hmm. well, that, that freedom needs to be defended right. and freedom needs to, is an active fight at all times right. to retain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've become apathetic mm-hmm. to the idea that men need to grow up to, to value defending their country. Right. You know, it, it's no longer, we, we pay, pay some type of homage to our veterans and, and to our military members. And it's almost like we're just doing it because we know we're supposed to. Mm-hmm. There's so many more people now that just, it, it is what it is. They're just always off. And this gets into the international stage. They're just off in some other country trying to enforce American imperialism. Right. But that's not how it's cast. The marketing is they're defending our freedom. Yes. And that's a lie. 
Yes. Um, there are some people who feel that that fighting over there keeps them from f- having uh, keeps us here from having to fight here against those uh, extremists, jihadists, whatever you want to call them. And so that process, we've delegated our defense to others. And I think that's the critical component. We have grown so large that we are now specializing and delegating defense of ourselves to police, defense of our nation to our soldiers and sending them places uh, all over the world. Um, And we're not taking responsibility to do that anymore for us. We're just going to have a good time and uh, and let the specialists handle that. So you think... um Taking the fight to, Af- say, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. ICE doorstep, do mm-hmm. you think that that's a wrong decision? I do. Yeah. I do. Um, it's very easy that that war could have been done in a matter of, I don't know, a couple of months. I'm not a military strategist, but all we really needed to do is to drop some ordinance on there. Because think about it. The Taliban that was controlling that country in those days is still there. Yeah. They're not in govern. They're not governing the whole country. But if you look at the history of Afghanistan, they have never had a solitary government that has ruled over them. They have yeah. been a country of warlords for their entire existence. And now we're going to go in there and implement a single sovereign government over all of the warlords? I don't think so. But we've spent over a trillion dollars over yeah. there trying to enforce our will. And the fact of it is, we don't belong there. And our soldiers don't deserve to die there. Uh, I've often said that the greatest honor we can bestow on all of our military mem- members is to stop s- wasting their lives on useless wars. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, we, it's, it's quite a prideful arrogance for us to watch what the Russians tried to do yeah. in Afghanistan. Well, mm-hmm. we can do it better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, yeah. it just, you, you can't do it. It's, it's such a... Like you said, it's, a, it's such a, a split-out nation. It's divided into mm-hmm. so many parts. Right. Um, and this is just getting into the, the mechanics of it, but really the value comes down to there's no reason for us to be there. That's right. Um, and people will bring up, well, ISIS, we need to stop ISIS, we need to continue. But we ISIS. created ISIS but because ISIS we interfered in Iraq. Yeah. Um, bringing down Saddam Hussein... Uh, regardless of what we think the reasons were, true or not true, um, is that we left a vacuum in that country and ISIS rose up out of that, just like Al-Qaeda rose up out of Afghanistan. We trained Al-Qaeda by our own CIA people, our own CIA agents in that country to fight against the Russians. And when the Russians left, (laughs) Al-Qaeda had nothing to do, so they turned around and focused on us. And they were well-trained to bring down the the Twin Towers on 9-11 by our own CIA. Yep. So we have brought on a great deal of trouble on ourselves by uh, getting getting involved, too involved over there. in in global politics where we didn't need to be. That's right. Um, Libya was really kind of the, the yeah. same issue. Exactly. God, uh, Mah- um, Gaddafi. Gaddafi. I wanted to say Gandhi. I'm like, that's not the right guy. <laughs> um, Gaddafi. He even said, he said, if you get rid of me, you'll have you know scores of African migrants at your doorstep. Yep. And he was right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And there's no question Qaddafi was an evil man. Yeah. Uh, just like Saddam Hussein was yeah. an evil man. The Taliban is an evil uh, organization. Absolutely. They are evil. They're abusive. They're murderous and torturous and all those kinds of things. But um, it's a little bit like when uh, Jesus tells about the idea of um, uh, casting out demons. Yeah. If you cast out demons from a man, but, he, but the Holy Spirit doesn't move into him, the demons return only far worse than they ever were before. And that's exactly the story of our intervention in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, I'm glad we've kind of been mostly around the perimeter of Syria and we haven't really committed ourselves there because that's another quagmire. And it makes me nervous that we're going to end up stepping into Syria Mm -hmm. and and we're just going to be stepping in cow dung if we do it. Right. And it scares me. And and this whole, we have to remove um, Assad. Mm -hmm. We have to remove him. We have to get rid of him. Right. My heart breaks for the situation. Yeah. But, you know, Proverbs even, even talks about be careful about sticking yourself in another fight. Mm-hmm. Or else you're 
you're liable to get hit. That's know? right. That's right. You'll pay the penalty for yeah. sure. You know, if you try to separate two fighting dogs, you're going to get bit. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, where did this come from? And maybe you can enlighten me. Where did this idea, do you think it, it's the, the evil economic theory of controlling, you know, finances, controlling economic power, all of that? Do you think that's where it came from? Do you think it came from a, a misguided moral mission to save the world from itself? Like, I think all think? of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it, we became more involved in that way uh, around the time of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the turn of the 20th century, where the progressives um, really had their birth. Yeah. And they thought that America was so great that uh, we were going to accomplish great things in the coming years. And certainly the 20th century, we did accomplish a great many things. But part of that process led us to interventionist points of view, where uh, Teddy Roosevelt leads the um, the Rough Riders into Cuba um, because he was going to liberate them. And uh, uh, so that was just an, uh, sort of the American arrogance. We did the yeah. same thing in the Philippines. Um, true. You know, uh, there was this interventionist point of view because America had this, um, what did they call it, um, Manifest Destiny, this whole push from the East Coast to the West Coast. And that translated into a kind of arrogance, global arrogance, that we, America, can now dispense our greatness all over the world, and everybody will be so grateful that we liberated them. And uh, it just didn't turn out that way. Which I, I hate to tie it back, but I think was fallout from World War II. Yes. Well, yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, we 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 came in as the hero. Yep, and and I'm not saying we weren't needed. We were obviously needed in the war, but um, I mean Russia really kind of I, yeah. <laughs> Russia really kind of did what needed to be done. But yeah, but we walked away saying we did a good thing. We helped out the world, and and I kind of wonder if if there was a bit of a big head syndrome after mm-hmm. that. that you know, well, we did something similar with World War I as well. We contributed uh, to that war, not as significantly, but uh, we contributed to it. But remember, as I said earlier, um, Britain and France brought this on themselves. Yeah. So it's my, it's my <laughs> opinion is that, uh, that we should not have gotten involved over there. Yeah. Just my opinion. Lot, that goes against the, um, the greatest generation um, belief system. Um, that yes, we did save Europe from the Nazis. Absolutely, we did, and we we curtailed the Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, it was six million Jews they successfully killed, but there could have been millions more. Yeah. Um, so there's a great show on um, one of the, is a Netflix uh, called The Man in the High Castle, and what oh, if man. the Nazis had won? Yeah. And they ruled the world, and what it would be like in America if the Nazis had come over here and defeated us. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, it's a, from a science fiction author, Philip K. Dick, who also did. Uh, uh, never mind. <laughs> Forget. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my brother is into that show, and and it's it's not Netflix, but I think it's Hulu. It's mm. it's the one I don't have. I've got oh, Netflix, okay. but yeah, okay. So I haven't had a chance to really watch it, but mm-hmm. it speaks glowingly of it. Yeah. Um, so what what would your philosophy be then, especially as a Christian? Mm-hmm. Um, you've been to put it cheesy. You've been elected president, overseer of America. You are now going to create the foreign policy of America, and especially your Christian values um, inform who you are. Yeah. And and who God is and what God thinks about America as well as Israel yeah. and all other mm-hmm. nations. Like, what's what's your overarching philosophy? Okay. Um, my number one value that I believe about America is liberty. It's not democracy. It's liberty, and they're not the same thing. Uh, liberty or uh, democracy can facilitate liberty as we were originally designed, at least uh, from a republic standpoint. Yeah. I, I use the word democracy more broadly um, but we know we're a republic and not a democracy. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but uh, in order for that to be successful, what we have to do is avoid the use of force, except 
in defense of ourselves and others that we see who are being abused, yeah. which is a very crackly borderline um, because, for example, I believe in uh, the right to carry weapons, just uh, the Second Amendment, um, but I don't believe in using a weapon as a force ex- to, con- to steal from people, to kill them, to abuse them, to whatever. That, that kind of thing is a forfeiture of the, of the whole meaning, the moral meaning behind self-defense. Yeah. Okay? And that goes with foreign policy as well. America absolutely should have the strongest defense known to man, and I would be supportive of whatever budget would be required for that if they didn't waste it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's a different topic, but yeah. Yeah, I hate the, def- the waste in the, in the Defense Department. But uh, so I'm, we, should have, we should be unassailable by any force in the world, including China, Russia, whatever. Okay. However... What should we do about other countries? Should we come to their aid? Yeah. George Washington would say, would, George Washington would never have approved going, becoming NATO allies. Yeah. Um, never. Uh, because he felt that alliances get us into other people's wars. Which is true. Which is really true. Absolutely. So um, I would not get involved in the civil war of any country. Um, so whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria... Libya, I would not do that. Uh, I also would not invade a country and overturn its ruler, even if that ruler was evil. Because that's not our job. Because think about what the cost is to American people. Not only do we have to send the sons and daughters of American families to impose the force of change, we actually have to force Americans to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, our 2%, or actually it's 3.6%, I think, on our, our NATO contributions, yeah. that's not including the, f- the military forces that are parked in Germany, that are parked in Korea. We have military forces parked all over the world to defend these other countries when they are perfectly rich enough to support their own defense. Yeah. That's coming out of the working people's pockets of America. We are subsidizing the defense of the whole world. What's right about that? Um, We're not defending ourselves because there's nothing happening in the Middle East that is going to be coming here. Um, And if it does come here, we have an adequate, we have the budget to have a defense force of the American boundaries that could easily defend us against that. Especially if we brought all of our people home. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So taking that one step further, what about foreign aid? Again, no one has a rightful claim on American money. And the American government has no business getting involved in humanitarian uh, activities. That is not what its job is for. Because remember that the federal government confiscates our earnings by force Threat of force, if you get thrown in prison for not paying your taxes, that means that taxation is a threat of force. Mm -hmm. So our money is confiscated against our will to be given to people in other parts of the world who may have a legitimate need for it or may not, um, but I didn't agree to it. The best voting, the best way to handle foreign aid is the United Way, American Cancer Society, um, (coughs) pardon me. Red Cross. Um, I'm know. sorry? Red, Red Cross, Cross? Red Cross. Yeah. There are, Americans are very generous. Even on top of our, you know, $3 trillion we pay in taxes every year, we also contribute billions more to humanitarian projects. Yes, Earthquakes and tsunamis and yeah. all kinds of things. And then just randomly feeding people around the world. Uh, we contribute to uh, medical things. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are really focused on health concerns of children in Africa. Mm-hmm. Bravo. That's all voluntary money. Yeah. Nobody's forcing people to contribute to that. Americans are very generous. So I think foreign aid, no government, an American government should not be involved in foreign aid of any kind, um, basically because it involves confiscating people's earnings without their consent. Right. So I, I totally agree. I, I can't put it much <laughs> you could have better done this myself. Without me. <laughs> no, you put it perfectly. So, well, we're at about an hour. Um, unless you have any closing thoughts, I guess we'll. 
I just believe in the idea of liberty, um, and liberty is more important than anything. It's our highest national value. Our, it's not safety. It's liberty, and liberty is messy, mm-hmm. and, but we have to prize it above all other things. God was the author of liberty, is the God, the author of liberty. He gave it to us as a priceless gift in the Garden of Eden, puts the tree in there, and he says, don't eat of that, and that was not intended to trick us. But it was intended to give us an opportunity to disobey, to say no to God. That was the original choice of liberty. God gave us liberty. Mm -hmm. And liberty means I get to say no, even to God. So (laughs) That's a good way to put it. So and and Americans make that choice all the yeah. time. Uh, yes, God, no God. Even those of us who follow Jesus uh, uh, as, as close as we have so far, um, we often say no yeah. in ways that we are we find ourselves disappointed later. We regret. Yeah. But God gives us that liberty to say no, to not obey, to not love the way we should, because He's patient and graceful. It's not just America's highest value; it's God's. Yeah. So we need to prize that gift of liberty and say, no, I'm not going to use force against you to make you do things the way I think you should. Absolutely. So, and that should define our foreign policy as well. That's, that's a very good closing point, is that when we really value liberty and we really value making your own decisions, which is liberty... Mm-hmm. suddenly our, our national policy takes on a whole different view yes, because absolutely. it's no longer trying to mold other countries to our value. It's you can make your own decision and we will be an example you can look to. That's right. That's right. It's a difference from us making an example out of you. <laughs> absolutely. And force is the thing that is the counter to liberty. Yeah. Um, unless somebody is assaulting you, Everybody should have the right to, first, to self-defense, everybody, and including uh, as much force as necessary to stop the threat. Yeah. But nobody should ever use force against other people, initiate force against other people to make them do what you want them to do. Yeah. And that includes paying taxes. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we're definitely going to have you back again (laughs) because there are 400 other topics I want to talk with you about and people get a taste of those. But so thank you so much, Paul, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Patreon. You can donate on there. You can get us on iTunes, YouTube, which hopefully you're watching right now. And be looking for the end of the year newsletter if you'd like it let us know. So thank you so much, guys. Have a great night. Love you.